What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. Jared is with me, and we are going to try something new for us, a new format. We are going to do book reviews. And today we are starting with David Fitzgerald's Jesus Mything in Action, which I know I've said it before. I love that title. It's a great title. It's probably one of the best titles for a book (laughs) or just a title for anything in that matter. It's like this. Really good. So good. Anyway, uh, we had David on the channel last November, and we had a great time. And so before we rake his book over the coals and tear it apart, we want to say that, one, uh, we did enjoy talking to David. We think he's a good guy. And I fully believe he believes everything in the book, right? I disagree with a lot of what he has to say, but I don't think he's, like, being dishonest or anything. I just, you know, think he's wrong. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with David, and um, this is a skeptical channel. So as skeptics, we want to be skeptical of even claims from within our own camps. And so uh, we shouldn't just accept everything whole cloth, and we're going to look at David's book and look at it from a skeptical lens and see if the claims hold up to to the evidence. Um, David does state out in his introduction, though, that the truth is arguments of the Mrs. Camp have never been rebutted. They've rarely even been debated. Instead, they've been sniffed at, mocked, declared to be mistaken, outdated, or simply irrelevant, and more often than not, simply ignored. So David, we heard you. We are not going to sniff or mock at your, your claims here or the Mrs. Claims, and we're not going to ignore them. We are going to attempt to refute them. Now... I can't promise that I'm going to make zero jokes, but <laughs> it would be in a, a lighthearted manner, not, not yeah, to yeah, not the points, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Like we said, we disagree with them, but you're going to see why. So if you've been living under a rock, um, I don't mean that, that way. So mythicism is essentially the position that the figure, Jesus Christ, who's depicted in the New Testament of the Christian Bible uh, never existed as a historical person, that this was a mythological figure all along that was later historicized in stories to put him in context here on earth. So that the, the person never lived, lived at all on earth. They were a myth. And then later people told stories about this person as if he did live on earth. So. Right. The exact specifics of what uh, the timing of it, who told these stories, how it came about, those vary from mythicist to mythicist. So it's not a perfectly homogenous group. No. But yeah, the basic the basic thrust is that there was never a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And another thing to point out is it is not the case that there is a uh, mythicist like Jesus never existed or Jesus was the divine miracle working son of God. Like those are not the only two options. The actual other option to mythicism that isn't Christian triumphalism is the historicist position, which is that there was a person probably named Jesus who lived in the first century. And that's who these stories are based on. Now, who that person was, what character they had, that is a thing that varies by his, uh, his, by historians, you know, so there's multiple ideas of that, but basically you've got mythicism. There was no dude. Historicism, there was a dude. And stuff in between. And David's book is arguing for the former. 
there was no dude. So we're also still kind of feeling out the format for these book reviews. So the big way it's basically going to go is we're not planning on like going like slavishly chapter by chapter. We're going to more or less go through them. This one has like three volumes, um, but we're going to go more or less in order and kind of pick out the main themes that we think should be addressed. So let us know in the comments if you want us to mix it up or if there's something you think we should dive in more, whatever. But today's theme is why aren't historians mythicists? That's is- the very first question that David poses in his book. Um, and he's essentially asking if his hypothesis is correct, why do so many experts disagree with him? Yep. This is something that Jordan asked himself and early on in his deconversion process with young earth creationism. And it's what led him basically to become an atheist. So absolutely. And it's a great question. It's it's very important to know where the scholarly consensus is on any topic, which even David in the book says. He says it's certainly reasonable for lay people to appeal to the consensus, and in most cases, the consensus is a very fine thing built upon a good, solid foundation. So it's true that something being the scholarly consensus doesn't make it true, right? Scholars can be wrong. However, experts are usually right, right? That's why That's why they're experts. That's why when you have a problem, you know, a health problem, you go to your doctor, not your plumber, you know, because he's an expert and he's probably, or they, they're an expert and probably right. So uh, it's important to understand where most of the experts are because like a priori, all else being equal, they're probably correct, right? So this particular book is looking at the experts of this particular field, right? So Right. So... Uh, why aren't more historians convinced that Jesus was mythical like David is? Uh, to hear pro- mythicism proponents like Richard Carrier or David or Guy West Engineer tell it, they think that the evidence is clear, it's obvious, and it's overwhelming, right? So if it is so obvious, why aren't experts persuaded? That is, and so David, I think, rightly recognizes this is something he has to deal with right up front. Right? This is the first thing he has to address because he knows that he and Carrier and the rest are on the fringe. They're on the very edge of scholarship on this topic. There's very few people who are informed, who are experts in the field who agree with them. Right. The answer that he essentially gives is that all biblical scholars are theologically biased, right? So. Right, all of them, especially the atheist <laughs> ones. <laughs> he says, uh, quote, biblical history has always been an apologetic undertaking in the service of Christianity. So the primary reason why no historian is convinced is because they're religious, they have religiously motivated bias. And so he dedicates the first and second and uh, actually some other chapters too on undermining the entire field of biblical scholarship and showing why you shouldn't rely on their conclusions, why you shouldn't trust them. And this isn't us like projecting onto Fitzgerald. He's very explicit. Here's another quote. We all have our biases, of course. That's no crime. The problem is that in this case, the particular bias is a deal killer. Ask yourself, how many Christians do you suppose are open to entertaining the idea that the Lord and Savior they depend on for their salvation, not to mention their salaries, might <laughs> might, might never have existed, end quote. Well, I mean, I could think of a few offhand. Uh, progressive Christianity has taken this to the extreme in some cases, but you have examples like Marcus Borg, who doesn't even believe that Jesus was a divine being. The resurrection is called into question for him. So it's not that far off to think that, you know, if you just said, well, he wasn't even a guy, Marcus Borg could still have his Christianity without Jesus being a dude. Marcus Borg considers himself a Christian, and he has said, quote, 
that he believes in the resurrection of Jesus. And this is a quote from him. I'm just skeptical that involved anything to do with his corpse. That's <laughs> well, pretty far outside the mainstream. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think, but to his statement, um, he makes it seem that no Christian would enter, ever enter, even entertain the idea of Jesus not being a historical person. And I, I think we have evidence to the contrary and there's very progressive Christianities out there. So, right. But Maybe I not think fundamentalists is, though. Yeah. <laughs> it is fair to say that there are Christians who certainly wouldn't. Right. No, exactly. Uh, and mythicists sometimes get accused of being like the young earth creationists of atheism, basically. Uh, and he, David tries to address this by, he, he, tries to draw a distinction between history, particularly biblical history, and science. And he says something that science would never do is start out with a predetermined conclusion and then demand that all scientists must swear allegiance to that idea regardless of what evidence became uncovered in the future. Which, okay, that's true. It's something that scientists mm -hmm. probably wouldn't do. Uh, but in the, in the next sentence, he says, though, and yet, look what we find throughout Christian academia. The majority of biblical historians are Christian believers. And you see the subtle switch there? Those aren't the same thing, right? Yeah. So he went from swearing allegiance to a thing and then stating just being Christian, right? So there's right. two different things different. going on there, yeah. right? Uh, the implication, of course, is that someone being Christian means they cannot do good history, at least where Jesus is concerned, right? Now, he has some, uh, some things that he thinks um, support this, some data that he has that he thinks support that this is the case, or at least that we should suspect it's the case. Um, he believes that, quote, increasingly, biblical studies departments, academic positions, and degrees are only to be found being offered by religious institutions, and a considerable number, if not the majority, of religious institutions require a confession of faith from their scholars. Yeah. So... so this goes into, if you want to work for us, you have to sign a statement of faith that says you believe X, Y, and Z exactly as we do. Right. And critically, you agree that nothing you you research, none of your published works or anything will go outside of those. Will contradict words. those things. Yes, exactly. Right. And so this is a true thing. It is a thing that happens in some universities, and it is obviously a bad thing. We fully agree with David Fitzgerald that this is not a good way to conduct scholarship. Obviously, you sh it's not good for, um, uh, for, what's the term I'm looking for? Independence of thought. There's a, there's a better term for that. It doesn't matter. Whatever. <laughs> it's not good for scholarship if you decide ahead of time what conclusion you're going to arrive at. Right? Yeah, I would say this is an even scholarship at this point. So. Yeah. I, in fact, I would go so far as to say that if, if someone is publishing who is working in a department where they cannot come to a different conclusion, like contractually than the one that they came with, then yeah, I would probably not consider that scholarship. At that point, it's just basically propaganda, right? Yeah. But the question is, how common is this, right? Because it's a, it's a huge difference whether it's like 90% or 9%, you know? So David had a team of volunteers do a survey of the degree-granting institutions in America. Now, uh, it would have been better, as David acknowledges, to do a survey of like the people working in the field, but I guess he believed that was too difficult, so we went with the degree-granting institutions. So I'm just going to go I, down. Go ahead. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be a pretty big undertaking, actually. Yeah, so, I, uh, I can think of some ways you could do it and make but, it narrow down, but 
Anyway, we'll get into sure. that in a second. Yeah. So here's how the numbers, the results of this survey that David says shows that um, that the majority of people working in the field can't be trusted because they are bound by these statements of faith or whatever. Here's how the results are presented in the book. 4,726 degree-granting institutions are in the U.S. Of that, 1,417 have relevant biblical-slash-Jesus-slash-New Testament studies. Of the 1,417, 814 were religiously affiliated. The remaining 603 were not religiously affiliated. Of the religiously affiliated, 273 were required or required their employees to sign or verbally affirm a statement of faith. The remaining two-thirds of five or 544 schools did not respond to the survey or did not have a statement of faith. 197 had no response. 344 said no statement was required. Did you catch all that? That's uh, clear as mud. I totally understand it. Uh, actually, when I was reading the book, um, I've read this book three times, by the way, so far. So don't say in the comments that we haven't even read his book. Uh, we have. You are uh, a liar. You've <laughs> never opened this book once in your life. Uh, I had to stop in this. And so... What Jordan just recapped is done over like several pages in the book. And so like the numbers just started bouncing around in my head and through all of it, I was trying to like imagine like, what does that even mean? Like, now, you know, to be fair, there are two charts that attempt to express these. Uh, one of them is like, it's a 3D pie chart, a 3D, 3D, not just a pie chart, a 3D pie chart. Come, come on, there's so many other visualizations. So it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I and it only it. shows the religiously affiliated and non-affiliated, right. as you can so, see. So so what I did, uh, I took the numbers uh, Jared put together and I put them on a chart all together. You can see it there. So this is the actual situation. Okay. You've got of the 4,700 some odd institutions in the U.S., he says – 3,309 of them have don't have a relevant program. 603 of them are not religiously affiliated. 541 are religiously affiliated. And a further 273 are religiously affiliated and have a statement of faith. Wow. So when you actually look at it like this, so that's a lot easier to digest. And I can visually see where that breakdown is. Um, right. So just oh. to get some percentages, that means of all institutions that were looked at, 6% were in the religious with a statement of faith, which is the segment that we're supposed to be most concerned about, right? If you just focus on the ones with relevant degrees, then that is 20%. But what does that mean to have a relevant degree? Yeah, that was the question that popped into my mind when I was reading this. I was like, wait, wait, relevant degree. Like, I need more than that, David. I want to know exactly what was your criteria for determining what constituted a relevant degree? Does it mean it has to be from a biblical like institution? Could it be just a generic, you know, Old Testament survey course? Like, what is it, right? So figure one, uh, the other figure that he posted, the title, uh, it's titled U.S. Learning Institutions with Biblical Studies Departments. Well, which is it, though? Is it a biblical studies department or is it a relevant degree? Because those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? They're not. So, for example, just to show, uh, you could have a, de a degree like an ancient history. That's not a biblical studies degree. But presumably, David would think that is a relevant degree because that's a degree that Richard Carrier has. He has a PhD in ancient history focusing on the early Roman Empire. And if somehow you don't know who Richard Carrier is, I don't know. 
how you got here. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Richard Carrier is like the big name in mythicism, and he has cited all up and down this book. David obviously highly respects Richard Carrier's uh, scholarship on this topic, mm-hmm. right? So he clearly thinks that Richard Carrier is qualified to speak on this topic, and yet Richard Carrier would not count as having a degree that's relevant according to the survey presumably uh i did email david to like try to get some of the methodology but it was like yesterday i i i'm not surprised he hasn't gotten back to me because like why should he right so if if he does we'll if he does and and some of this is incorrect then we'll we'll correct it when he uh gets back to me but i we're like judging the book based on what's in the book right so according to what's in the book it doesn't seem like richard carrier would count as having a relevant degree but David clearly does. Also, uh, America isn't the only place where scholarship happens. <laughs> right. Uh, in fact, uh, scholarship happens all over the world. And in a lot of cases, some of the uh, most concentrated areas of biblical studies happen in in Europe, like in places like Germany, where um, when I was going through my undergrad uh, in my master's program, like I didn't have access to some things because I couldn't read German. Some of the papers that I needed to to read, to get stuff, I had to find somebody else to help me translate them because I didn't have access to them. So like, it just goes to show you that the U.S. is just a small sample size. So like that graph should even go. (laughs) So 70% of universities in America have no program that's relevant to the New Testament, uh, apparently, but I don't think that's correct. But okay, let's keep moving on. Let's keep digging down. He splits the ones with relevant programs. He splits them between religiously affiliated and not religiously affiliated. And the clear implication is that those who are religiously affiliated are the ones that we should be suspecting of bias, right? Mm -hmm. But what counts as being religiously affiliated? I mean, at the face of it, it seems like it should be obvious. Oh, they're like a Christian school. That seems to be the, that's the image I would have, I I kind of first. So if you were to pull the audience, probably the first answer anybody's going to give you is like Liberty University. Like that would be number one on anybody's mind, right? Clearly a religiously affiliated university. Yeah. And that is explicitly a Christian (laughs) school. Like, like that is definitely religiously affiliated, right? For sure. And it's religiously affiliated in the relevant way and the manner in which David's like talking about it. Like that is clearly counts. But say, what about Duke? Duke University. They are historically affiliated with a Methodist church. Their motto is Iridicio et Religio, which translates to knowledge and religion. And it was like historically, it was called Trinity College back in the day. So like Mm -hmm. it has a historical tie to the Methodist church. But like today, it's a non-sectarian church. You can go and get a degree in, I don't know, engineering or biology and like have absolutely nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever, you know? So with that... Yeah, would that fall under the religiously affiliated or not religiously affiliated? And I mean, we don't know you, based on what the information we're provided. We don't know, but I suspect it would if you just Google Duke. It's and re, I Googled Duke religiously affiliated, and I said yes, Duke is religiously affiliated with the Methodist Church. So I suspect, don't know, but I suspect that Duke would count under this. But if this is what counts as a religiously affiliated school, well, then that kind of loses some of its force, right? Um, now it is true that Duke has a divinity school. And that is explicitly Christian, but the degrees they offer there are like theology degrees, which you could do biblical studies, biblical history with a theology degree, but you don't necessarily need a theology degree to do it, right? You could go to the Duke History Department, which has nothing to do with the Divinity School, and there you go. So. 
Hey there, Future Jordan here. David Fitzgerald was kind enough to respond to my email asking about our methodology. He just responded, you know, after we'd already recorded before. So regarding what degrees were included in the survey, he said that the team had a, quote, very conservative focus and that his team kept their parameters specific on the degrees, biblical history, New Testament studies, Jesus studies, et cetera, as opposed to, say, history or ancient history, things like that. For the religious affiliation of schools, he said that, quote, if the religious affiliation wasn't obvious, we treated them as non-affiliated. This could still cover a wide variety of schools, like Duke is officially affiliated with the Methodist Church, but it's functionally non-sectarian. David didn't confirm whether or not Duke was specific, like was included. That's just an example. Uh, but anyway, now you have the methodology straight from the horse's mouth. So back to past Jordan and Jared. So. so. But the next step, the, this is the one that that's, that is actually seems important. The next step is the 273 schools that require a statement of faith. And again, in the book, he says that they, that this, this 273, they require a statement of faith or, or some kind of like a, a doctrinal commitment from the people that has to be signed or verbally assented to or whatever. That's what he says this is, right? This is also a little suspect. Because further on, after they, they kind of go through that breakdown, they say that some of the groups that said that they didn't require any statement of faith from their instructors or employees, he says that this is flatly untrue because, quote, further investigation showed that their statement of faith and or doctrinal requirements could be located on the school website. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, <laughs> Pump the brakes, David. Your, those, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two things are not the same thing. Yeah. You know? A doctrinal requirement is is what this statement of faith usually means. Like, I am signing a statement. I'm saying verbally or written that I will do this. But having a statement of faith on a website for a school is not unusual because that's just saying that the school, this is our belief system. This is what we believe as, as, a, as an institution. That doesn't mean that you have to sign that or agree with that to work at that institution though. Right. And it may be, even if it's not like signed, maybe there's like social pressure to force you to conform. Sure. Perhaps, or perhaps not. I don't know. And there's nothing in this data to tell me which it is. And so that, but uh, not only does this like cast doubt on the entire survey, because if they're just saying, oh, well, they have a statement of faith. Well, that's very different than forcing people to, to, sign it, right? So now I'm questioning the entire 273 number. But aside from that, uh, David says, okay, so there was like, I forget the numbers, like 30 or something schools. He, he says they lied. He, he, I don't know if he uses the word lied actually, but he, he basically says that they said a flatly untrue statement is what he says. Mm -hmm. um, and so, <laughs> which <laughs> otherwise known as lying. So yeah. uh, he's from that, he concludes that the actual number of schools that have this doctrinal requirement could be as high as all of them. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. So this part really struck me because not only is it the last thing that he leaves his reader in that section. So he goes through all this data, but the very last thing he wants to leave you with is it could be as high as all of them. To me that, that, I don't want to say it, but it sounds like you're poisoning the well here, David. They're like, you want the reader to leave this saying all of these things have to be called into question. That's that's a stretch. 
which is just not what the data says. It goes well beyond what even the most charitable reading of this survey could be. Even if that 273 group is, in fact, a number of schools that all of them strictly enforce the statement of faith, right? And even if you are correct that the 70% 70 of universities in America have no degree program that is in any way relevant to studying the New Testament as a historian, if we accepted all of that, it would still be the case that 80% of schools don't require a statement of faith. That's what your data actually says. And so, like, yes, it could be all of them. Well, sure. <laughs> like, if I did a survey and, like, I studied and I found, I don't know, 5% of Americans are in the KKK, but then I went back and, like, did some sleuthing and I found, oh, another 2% I was able to confirm. They lied about it. They were actually in the KKK. So it could be all of them. <laughs> I mean, it could, but that doesn't mean it is. Like, that's not a reasonable inference from the evidence. So... Right. Yeah, this is just a bald assertion. Uh, there's nothing backing it up. And that's what we want to hit home here. Like, so skeptically looking at the data, like it's on its face, it seems, wow, this is crazy. But when you actually look at it, you break it down and analyze it and ask yourself what questions are being asked? What is the criteria? You know, what does the data actually show? I think it's speaks for itself. Yeah, so. you have to dig past the narrative about the data and actually look at the data itself and let the data speak to you. Yeah. So now, just to be clear, we're not saying that the majority of biblical historians are not Christian. I mean, the majority of people are Christian in America, at least. Yeah. So like, just from that, I'd expect most people. And I mean, sure, it, it's a study of the Bible. I'd expect Christians to be attracted to that at a higher rate than most people. Right. So I'm not saying that David is wrong in inferring that the majority of biblical scholars are Christians. I'm, I'm sure that's correct. What I am saying, the evidence he presents is insufficient to say that they work for uh, institutions that um, hold them to a strict statement of faith or doctrinal requirements such that it uh, limits their academic freedom. That's the word I couldn't remember earlier, academic freedom. Academic freedom. <laughs> freedom. Yeah. yeah. Right. It yeah. may yeah. be the case, but the data presented by David does not show that. It's also important to point out here too, and we mentioned it earlier, but this data is only speaking of the U.S., but when David talks about it, he doesn't qualify that when he says could be all of them. So, like, in right. my mind, I'm I, at that point, I have the picture all institutions, which is not, yeah. not represented. So. And, and again, this is – David Fitzgerald wants us to take this and c therefore conclude, like, this is why there's so much resistance among scholars uh, to the Jesus myth theory because of this religious control of the field. Okay. But okay. Let's, that's a survey, not the greatest survey in the world. I probably, if I was doing a multi-year survey, I would have, I don't know, done like a 20 year literature review and just looked at all the papers being published and like seeing where they were being published. Cause like, even if 20% of schools are religious, maybe those 20% are like super prolific. And so like 90% of papers are published by this 20% with the statements faith. Well, that's, that's a very different picture. Or maybe they're yeah. not prolific at all. And it's like 1% yeah. of papers. Well, that's different too. But yeah. okay, let's leave. I, I'm going to take off my analyst hat for a second. <laughs> let's leave that aside. Uh, there's another piece of data that David gives. Um, after this more quantitative data, he gives a sample of qualitative data, some anecdotes 
about people being persecuted, so biblical scholars who said things that were contrary to Christian dogma, and as a result, you know, had bad things happen to them. And so these examples are intended to undergird the survey results and show us that it is, in fact, the entire field that's corrupt. So the majority of this actually takes place in chapter two of the book, and this is where he goes over this cases. Now, uh, we're not going to go over all of the cases. He presents six cases. Um, I think it's, it, we don't have the time to go over them with a fine-tooth comb. But what we can do is actually look at a few of them uh, and kind of see what these cases look like, what the outcomes were, how David right. presents them, right? So the first case is actually probably the most famous case if you – has spent any time on uh, atheist or Christian YouTube, you're going to hear about this, but the Mike Lacona zombie apocalypse in Matthew case, right? Yeah. This is where Mike Lacona, who, if you're unaware, is a Christian apologist and biblical scholar who has suggested, has said that he doesn't think that the per, uh, the pericope, is that how you pronounce it? Pericope? In pericope? Matthew. Yeah. Pricopy, Pricopoo, whatever, Pricopie. Uh, the he doesn't <laughs> think the story in Matthew where like the saints get up and walk around. He thinks that's like an analogy or like like it's apocalyptic imagery meant to undergird or, or emphasize how important a thing is going on. He thinks it was a metaphor, right? Yeah, just and he metaphor. got right, and he got some flack for it. And and I think we've mentioned early on this on the thing. I actually respect Michael Kona a lot. I disagree with many of his conclusions. But Mike Lacona seems like a person who is honestly trying to get to the truth. I don't think he's gotten there. But like, this is the guy who has at at some points in his history said, what's my confidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Like 80%. 80%. Like, that's <laughs> way lower than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe 99%, which you hear from most Christians. But so David go. so David kind of outlines what happened. Like, talks about the the Matthew thing, and then he goes in to show how, you know, some apologists accuse Mike of denying full inerrancy. Uh, he talks about how he lost speaking gigs as a result of it, and it ended up resulting in him choosing uh, of his own volition to resign his positions um, from the Southern Evangelical Seminary where he was working, as also his positions on the board of the North American Mission Board where he had been doing some apologetic consulting, basically. Um, so... He does go on, to David's credit, to suggest that some prominent Christian scholars uh, unsuccessfully came to Lacona's defense and that a good number were afraid to actually do so because of punitive measures. So again, this is kind of like they know it, they, they can't speak out because they'll get smacked on the wrist, basically. So Okay. But let's let's look at what actually happened. So Mike did resign his position. He lost some bucks because he got lost some speaking positions, but where is he now? Well, Mike Lacona is currently the Associate Professor in Theology at Houston Baptist University, as well as a Professor in Theology at Northwest University. And yep. he's a director of like a ministry. So it's not like he was running out of town on the rails. He's at a Baptist seminary. Like he didn't even need to go to an ivory tower of liberalism to get a new jo job, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know? <laughs> he didn't even well, need to leave like, like evangelical scholarship, basically. Yeah. Uh, but well, da okay. David presents this like uh, like he, he ends the, the case like Mike lost his job. That's it. He doesn't go on to say the other part of it because that right. would undergird his case. Right. And also, you know, who didn't grab pitchforks and torches to go like crucify Mike Lacona? Biblical scholars. 
right? This story right. is supposed to be showing us why the field of biblical scholarship is so biased that they won't tolerate any heresy. And yet the only biblical scholars mentioned are the ones who are defending Michael Kona. Yeah. Or the ones who wanted to defend it, but were a little right. afraid. Right. Yeah. Okay. So. so what this shows, what this actually shows is that evangelical organizations won't tolerate you stepping too far out of line, which I could have told you that. Like, sure. I'm not at all surprised that Michael Kona said something that was outside of the like very right-wing fundamentalist interpretation of scripture. And as a result, fundamentalist Christians didn't want him around. Okay, cool. I, I agree. But that doesn't mean that the entire field of biblical scholarship is corrupt. Well, that's case one. Let's look at case number six. So this is Anthony Ladone. Either Ladone or Ladone, I don't know how to pronounce uh, words sometimes. So uh, we'll just go with Anthony. Uh, David Fitzgerald uh, starts out by saying that Anthony was a young and up and coming evangelical New Testament scholar until his book, Historical Jesus, What Can We Know and How Can We Know It? Uh, this came out in 2011. So apparently this lost him his job because how? Well, David even states in his in the book that he's not really sure how this lost him his job, but goes on to say that there was some... Um, some donors who weren't happy, uh, and so he ended up being forced to to lose his job, right? But uh, what he does say in the book is that uh, his book was well-received, wait for it, by biblical scholars. So the book that what? got him in hot water was received well by biblical scholars. Those are supposed to be the people that are like all corrupted and in the pocket of the Pope and stuff. Like those guys <laughs> thought it was great. What? what? <laughs> exactly. So um, the only the reason he lost his job is because some donors were mad about what he said in the book. And then the president or the whoever was running the university fired him. So what did other like universities have to say about this? So, well, what? surprisingly enough, uh, Anthony actually. Um, so a lot of scholars. Well, let's hold on here. David says, and this is a quote from the book. Scholars were swift to express their support for Ladone and their indignation over his treatment. University of Edinburgh's Larry Hurtado pulled no punches when he called the incident shameful and cowardly and openly asked why some Christians institutions treated their academic staff in manner so harsh, so paranoid and so unchristian. And not just in Ladone's case, but across the field of biblical scholarship. So a Christian organization got irritated, fired him, and the field of biblical scholarship condemned it. Yes. Oh, the, okay. the same field that is supposed <laughs> to be, you know, holding these people down, right? Um, I, I, it's kind of interesting. I think it's important to point out too, in the book, David clearly states that Anthony was a young and up-and-coming scholar until until this, this book came out. And then he ends. He doesn't say anything else about Anthony's future. So the picture he's painting is that um, Anthony ended up getting fired, and that was it. And he never worked Careers another over. religious institution ever again. It's like He's like bussing tables at a Denny's. <laughs> but that's not the case. He's actually working uh, at the United Theological Seminary as a professor, professor in New Testament studies. So, so he's still working in the field. He's still working in the field. I, I, I don't want to say that uh, David didn't do this, but in all six cases, he doesn't. So mine may maybe Tom Thompson. He actually goes into like saying Tom Thompson eventually got a job, but only after the consensus 
started to agree with the things that he said, right? Well, hang on. But, I thought the consensus couldn't change. I thought that was the whole point of this exercise. <laughs> that little guy, I wouldn't worry about that little guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is the point, right? It, he doesn't, to me, it seems a little strange that David wouldn't point out that all of these people ended up getting positions within the field, within other Christian institutions. Um, so yes, they did step out of line. But here's the other thing that I think undermines this. They all stepped out of line. They weren't afraid to speak up. They weren't afraid to publish. They weren't afraid to get out there and say things that went against the, the consensus. Like, isn't that what this whole thing is supposed to be stopping them from doing? And like, these are only six cases, right? This is all, but it's all anecdotal evidence and in the end. Presumably, these are the best six that David knew. Because otherwise, well, why would you put them in, why, in your book, Yeah, you put right? your best case forward, right? So, Right. So if this is the best six cases that are supposed to prove to me that biblical scholarship is a field so thoroughly under the boot of fundamentalist Christians that nobody can step out of line because they'll lose their career, this is not that. This does show that for some institutions, the Christian sensibilities have too much influence. I think that's fair. There are certainly some institutions where that is the case. But yeah. David does not, in his book, show that that is uh, systematic for the entire field. It doesn't show that we should therefore be uh, we should reject the findings of the entire field as biased, which is the thing that that David is explicitly saying he's trying to prove. Moreover, well, yeah, something that it, it, we haven't talked about yet, but like, okay, maybe you'd believe that like. Uh, Christian scholars are bound by statements of faith or whatever. They're reluctant. What about the ones that aren't Christian? What, what about, about them? What about them, Jordan? Um, well, they're all tainted too because they work in the same field. So that, you just need to know that. Got it. Got it. So all of the scholars are bound by religious convictions, especially the atheist ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> So, so it, he, he states in chapter one, uh, arguably it's gotten to the point where now secular biblical historians are the only ones who are actually making any real progress in the field at all. Uh, yet even among secular biblical scholars, it's difficult to find one who doesn't come out of a religious background. Theological assumptions are a pervasive difficulty in the field, not, not merely among practicing believers, but among the formerly religious as well. Uh, so, of course, mythicism is a minority opinion. I fully expect mythicists like me will remain on the scholarly periphery for as long as biblical studies continue. So, basically, if you were – not only are you a Christian, but if you ever were a Christian or presumably were raised Christian, you are forever tainted. You are you, – you have that original sin of Christianity and therefore you cannot be trusted. Yeah. Well, I think this kind of like pokes a little bit at, you know, Bart, the Bart Armans. Bart the Airman. The, I, I'm yeah. pretty sure that that entire thing was geared directly at Bart Airman. He does mention Bart Airman in some other places in the book, um, but I, I don't think he specifically mentions him at this section, but it is important to know. Um, so even if you're committed atheist now, it doesn't matter. You know, your pro-Christian biases are a part of you. You can't take that away. But let's let's kind of summarize this whole little section here. So yes, some bad things happen at religious institutions to scholars. That's bad. Okay, uh, that, totally, totally agree. We flatly and unequivocally condemn that. That is yes. bad. It has a chilling effect on the field. Even if it doesn't ruin the entire field, it is not a good thing, and it shouldn't happen. Not at all. But this, what the case that David's presented, is all anecdotal evidence, and may 
or may not be indicative of the entire field of biblical studies, right? We don't know. Since we don't have the evidence, it hasn't been provided to us in a way that we can make a determination, right? The picture that David's painting in this section of his book is that everyone is afraid to speak out and support the Jesus myth theory, including secular scholars, as we've seen. So this kind of gets to my favorite little part of here. And I call this little section Carrier's Girlfriend in Canada. Uh, so in a section here, David uh, notes that Richard Carrier has found um, lots of agnostics and major historians in the field who have told him personally and privately that- Him quote, being Carrier. Told Carrier. So Carrier told David what they told him, but he won't tell them. So, uh, so this is what they told Carrier, quote- <laughs> they do not touch this topic with a 10-foot pole precisely because they fear the kind of ermine, they, they fear the kind of thing ermine is doing and threatening. They do not want to lose their jobs or careers, prospects, and opportunities. They do not want to be ridiculed or marginalized. But as they f- don't feel safe coming forward with these views publicly, he has continued to protect their anonymity. So, Jordan, you should see my girlfriend. She's super fine. Yeah, awesome. You should bring her around. Well, I think she lives in Canada, so uh, but but what? But maybe you know, like the scheduling <laughs> wouldn't work, and you know, yeah. But trust me, yeah. so hot. How <laughs> convenient is it that all of these prominent, uh, you know, especially Dude, very prominent historians in the field, are, huge, huge historians, huge. the best, the best historians, <laughs> huge. Um, <laughs> I find so. I don't think that mythicists are conspiracy theorists at all. But this is the kind of language that you hear from conspiracy theorists, right? Like you, every every conspiracy theorist, every single one is convinced there is this. I there's both simultaneously a uh, cabal, like <laughs> all working against them, and at the same time somehow like a silent majority of people who are afraid to speak out. Like, so I, I don't think they believe in the shadowy cabal part, but it like, yeah, like you said, this sounds like the sort of thing we hear from conspiracy theorists. Oh, the experts really agree with me. They're afraid to speak out and I don't want to say their names, but trust me, trust me, they're there. Well, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't believe you. Like I'm going to yep. need some evidence. I am going to need some names. I'm going to need something other than, source trust me bro to believe that there's actually this huge movement in the field i don't i I don't want to say that i don't think david's lying i think this is his impression but i don't think his impression is based on good evidence i don't think that this impression is uh, that there's sufficient evidence to draw this conclusion so let's kind of wrap up the first couple chapters here um what do we make of these first few chapters so one thing we should take from this is that David recognizes that this position, mythicism, is not accepted by the most scholars. He is well outside of the scholarly consensus, and that's something he feels compelled to address. And the thing that he thinks explains it is not that the evidence is poor or that the arguments are are weak or anything like that. No. The reason nobody agrees with him, not nobody, but very few people agree with him, is because all of them are biased. Every single person in the field outside of Carrier and Price and himself and, you know, a few select others, the reason they don't agree and yeah, yeah, uh, outside of the handful of mythicists, the reason they don't agree is either they cannot refuse to agree because of their religious convictions blinding them to the truth or the 
crushing strength of the Christian church is forcing them into silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, there's a couple positives here. One, uh, David is asking questions. Why don't people believe the way that I believe? Let's look into that. Great question to ask. So I think we need Absolutely. to do that. Yeah. He is pointing out there is some hypocrisy within the field. He is pointing out there are some institutions who, yes, they do have bad practices. They require their staff to to sign a uh, statement of faith. Yes, some scholars get in trouble when they speak out against it. These are all great things to point out, and we should point them out, and we should call these institutions out for doing so, right? That's that's a great point. We should be aware that this is a thing that happens in this field. And so you have to know when you're reading something, who is it that's publishing this? Are they someone that's publishing from Liberty University and are contractually obligated to come to this conclusion? Or are they someone publishing at a secular university where they're free to make whatever decision they want? That is absolutely a valuable question you should ask for sure. Yes. Have we been presented enough evidence to conclude that the entire field of biblical studies is tainted and can't be trusted because they are religious though? No, absolutely. We have not. not. No. So I, I think that's it for this for this first couple of chapters. Um, anything else you kind of wanted to add or say just in general? No, as we go through, we're what what matters ultimately is the evidence. So it it mm-hmm. ultimately doesn't matter whether or not the majority of scholars are convinced because the evidence is what matters. The reason it's a relevant question for skeptics to ask is because we are not experts, right? And so it's important as lay people to uh, listen. You should get your history from historians. It's the, it's the bottom line. You should get your biology yeah. from biologists. You should get your physics from physicists. You should get your history from historians. I think one last thing I want to iterate is that the entire uh, three volumes of this book um, are based on the foundation that biblical scholarship is tainted, Right. So most of the arguments that that he is going to make moving forward are based on the assumption that biblical scholarship is tainted. It has this bias in that. So uh, we need to keep that in mind when we're starting to look at the claims and evaluations of scholarship in the in the coming chapters, right? So uh, that's our the first episode of I have no idea how many episodes this is going to be. The thing is three volumes. We'll keep going as long as you're interested. We're not going to do this every single week. Uh, we're going to do it probably about once a month until we get exhausted and give up or get to the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. And and I do want to point out too, we are not out setting out to just to destroy David Fitzgerald's book. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy David as a, as a person. Uh, he brings a lot to the table for educating atheists and Christians alike on some of the very um, bad things uh, of Christianity. So I think that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and, the one thing, and yeah. In future episodes, I know there's going to be more I agree with David than in this one. <laughs> this oh, one's for pretty, sure. pretty much negative. Yeah. But yeah. The, the one last thing I wanted to point out, though. So in the introduction to David's book, he states, every word of what little evidence we do have is complete hearsay. In relating to the mythicist position, this is a claim, pretty big claim. Very big and claim. I, That's bold. I hope he can support this in the remainder of the book. So <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. So now that we've reached the end of our review, as always, we have a fallacy for you. Today's fallacy of the day is cherry picking. Hmm, cherry picking. 
So yeah. if you are not familiar with cherry picking, I don't know how you made it this far in the video, first of all, and how you ended up here. But cherry picking is basically going out and looking for pieces of evidence that support uh, your position. And you're also ignoring evidence that don't support your position. That's important too. So you've got this field of stuff and you pick the cherries that you like and leave the rest, right? You don't want the bad Uh, cherries. You don't want the bad cherries. You don't want those bananas or whatever. So (laughs) this happens all like, I cannot tell you how many times I have had someone cite a paper. I, I asked them for their evidence and they cite a paper and you go to the paper and they read the first sentence of the abstract and literally nothing else. Or they like went in and found one statistic they liked and they quoted that, but didn't quote any of the context, which undermined it. That's cherry picking. Yeah. Right. It's not good. And, it's not a good practice at all. Right. So but. the, if you are, if you exclude all evidence that disagrees with you, then all of the evidence is going to agree with you, right? <laughs> that's And that's not a good way to get to truth. Sometimes, even if you're right, even if you're correct, there's going to be, there's likely going to be evidence that points in the other direction because reality isn't clean cut. And usually the way things really are is not quite so black and white, right? And so you shouldn't be afraid of it, one, because like you shouldn't be afraid of the truth Anyway, you want to just follow the evidence where it leads, not lead the evidence where you want. But also, you should be aware of the evidence that points against you, not because it means you're wrong, but to give yourself an accurate picture of what reality looks like. Yeah. So. So that's our... Yep. yep, very simple. So that's our episode. Again, this is a new format for us. So let us know what you think in the comments. Uh, if you have some things you want us to cover or uh, you know points you want us to hit, make sure to let us know, and we'll try to hit them in future episodes. I'm going to make I a will prediction. Add, go ahead. Before your prediction, I will add, if you're listening to this, you should go out, you should buy David Fitzgerald's book, read it for yourself, and make sure that we are accurately depicting it. Right? And right. if we're not, let us know. Yeah, definitely let us know if we got something wrong. I'm going to make a prediction that this video will be responded to by a Mythicist channel. That Mythicist channel will conclude that we are lying about having read the book. We didn't read the book. If we did read it, we didn't understand it. And if we did understand it, we have an agenda. I'm making that prediction right now. Put in the comments below which channel you think that is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway, that's our show. Uh, And remember, until next time, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.